Hello and welcome to another episode of CG Garage. This is episode number 442, featuring James McLaughlin, who is the visual effects supervisor of this season of Ted Lasso, which was fabulous. Talk a little bit about that. But first, let's talk a little bit about uh, James. He uh, has an amazing career that started from New Zealand, which is where he's from, and he ended up learning to flame there. And then he moved to Australia for a little bit and ended up in the UK. Um, and a really cool guy. And then obviously led him to doing uh, Ted Lasso, uh, which was nominated for an Emmy this year. So congratulations to James. It was really cool sort of hearing a little bit about that history and about how they do that. I love invisible visual effects, as you guys well know, and sort of understanding how the, all the crowds are being done and uh, sort of the unique thing that they did, including using a lot of live actors uh, for it, but uh, in a very unique way. So really cool to hear all of that story. Um, a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, I was at the Rainbow Conference last week, which was really, really cool. And I want to thank the guys from Rainbow for inviting me. I was able to have a really great time there and give a really great talk. Something that I am super proud of uh, is uh, some of the things we're doing in the Innovation Lab with Vantage 2. Uh, one of the things we uh, I showed there uh, is not yet available, but we can talk about it. Is there's going to be a new version of Vantage that is going to feature DLSS 3.5, including ray con reconstruction that is significantly increasing the speed of our ray tracing. I know this sounds like a lot of technical stuff, but it was really amazing and something that I am extremely excited about, especially if we can get fully ray traced frames done in HD at 100 frames a second. That is kind of mind-blowing uh, and it's really amazing to see. I'm not kidding you when I say those numbers. Those are kind of crazy. So a lot of exciting stuff happening in Vantage 2, uh, and that is leading to some really interesting projects in the Innovation Lab, which you will be hearing more and more about. Uh, speaking of that, uh, a couple of events are happening. I will be at THU on September, which uh, THU Japan, more specifically. That is going to be in September 20th to the 23rd. Uh, so that's later this month. Very excited about that. I haven't... I've never been to Japan, so that's also super exciting. Uh, later in October, I will be at the VIEW conference, uh, and that is between the 15th and, 20, uh, and 20th of October. Very excited about that. I have never been to the VIEW conference itself. Lots of exciting things going on there. And then Rhino World is happening also in Barcelona, and that is October 17th through the 19th. So all of those can be found at uh, chaos.com slash events. Again, that is chaos.com slash events. Now, of course, if you guys want to know more about the podcast, the best thing to do is to follow us on our podcast page, which is chaos.com slash CG Garage. Uh, you can always follow us on our social network, which is facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast. And if you'd like to watch us, always a good thing to do. You can just follow us on uh, our YouTube, which is youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Uh, and if you have other suggestions for podcasts, this was actually a suggestion for us, and I was really happy to have it. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please don't forget to email us. Labs at chaos.com is where you can suggest guests, or if you have ideas or feedback for any podcast, we'd love to know. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 442 with James McLaughlin. Welcome to another CG Garage. Where the chaos group talks You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range We know that ambient occlusion is passe Global illumination won't lead you astray And while image-based lighting is really swell 
You need to make sure everything has for now. Well, cool. Well, cool. Well, James, so thanks so much for doing this. I've actually been very excited uh, to talk to you. Obviously, congratulations on being nominated for uh, Ted Lasso. It was really exciting uh, to see that. Uh, but before we, we dive into that, I'd like to know a little bit about you. I mean, obviously, you've have a, you have a long career. I've seen your work. I've been to your website. Really amazing stuff you've done. Uh, you've done some incredible commercial work that I've seen as well. Uh, what got you interested in computer graphics and wow. doing this kind of work? Um, I, uh, growing up, I was always the kid. My school reports always said James is staring out the window again. And so, uh, you know, James lacks focus, but I'm sure what he's imagining is really interesting in his own head. And I think computer graphics was a natural progression because it's obviously what we can't film. So uh, we film what we can, but then we put it all together in the computer and any gaps we have, we, we fill in the pixels with computer generated imagery, which is for the most part based on reality, which I quite like, you know, it's, it's an extension right. of our imaginations. So I think it was always gonna, I was gonna end up in the arts somewhere that I flirted at the end of high school with things like architecture, uh, but ended okay. up in graphic design uh, and then motion design and then visual effects. So it was sort of an extension through through that path. I did a really early CAD course in my hometown with a mate of mine. He dragged me out in his car one night and said, let's go and do this course at a local university. We were still at, still at high school at the time, but it was a sort of night course. And I really loved it. Where that. was this? That was a, at Massey University in Palmerston North in New Zealand. So Okay. Yeah, long way from sort of any of the Hollywood blockbusters being built and put together at the time, but it was it was really interesting because it was a combination of they had Wacoms there with like mice that were driven by you know it, it was just it was a long time ago so it was a lot of fun and sure. uh, I've always had an interest in cameras and stuff as well so it, it was gonna be something in in that realm yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, so so you, you sort of dived into all kinds of things that were creating images in some way or shape or form, right? Like that's, were you interested in making the image? Were you interested in telling a story? What was the thing that you wanted to try to do? I think for me, it really has been a combination of the two. I think I, I, I love great stories. It's always the narrative, the written word. It's always, you know, I've read my entire life, all sorts of fantastical things um, that people have written over the years. And I think my brain was always relatively good at seeing the pictures in my head and imagining extensions of what the, the world creations around these things could be. So putting the images down on paper always started to become quite fun from about the age of about six, seven, eight. You know, my mum was an art teacher. My dad was a primary school teacher, so we spent a lot of time around learning. A lot of my dad was one of the first to get computers into school in his school in New Zealand. He he would bring them home on the weekends, and we would figure out, you know, using I think they were BBC macros. This was in the sort of early eighties, mid eighties. Okay. Um. So, and I can always remember there was a great program on there, and my cousin was into computer graphics, and he had Ataris and things like that. So it was always I was always in that realm. And it always fascinated me. But the imagery was the, you can probably see up in the corner there behind me, the National Geographics. Yeah. Dad had a subscription to them. And my grandparent on my mum's side would always send me amazing books that were probably beyond my years of imagery from around the world, you know, magnum books mm. and, and things like that. So 
the 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 narrative that comes from the imagery was what I always loved. So stitching those two together um, was always yeah very much part of my sort of upbringing, and therefore I wanted it to be part of my future. You know. Yeah, I think that's kind of kind of amazing. I mean, I had a I had a in my my past was I always thought I was to be an architect, and uh, I went all the way to doing it, and I realized. I actually became an architect, did the whole thing, and then oh, I was like, cool. I don't actually don't care about buildings. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, architecture. I mean, like, I, I do, I do love buildings. I just didn't yeah. care if they were built or not, you know. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 I like the picture of the image of the building. Yeah. Or the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the implementation of visual effects is really interesting. I love it, but I really mm. love the figuring out. Like, I love reading scripts and going. Oh, how right. are how you going to do, do this? Like, <laughs> yeah. the shooting of it is loads of fun, and Ted Lasso was absolutely amazing. Lovely crew. Sure. But when you read the scripts before anybody's seen them and, you know, you, you're going through them and you're like, oh, we could do this that way, we could do this that way. And there's all these yeah. sort of new interesting tools coming along and things like this, and it's like, how do we get that, that written word in front of people's eyeballs to the best sure. of our ability as, a, you know, a team of hundreds of people? And it's... Yeah, it's just we're always visual effects is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we're sort of every year we're expected to expand and get better than the last, which is mm -hmm. isn't that doesn't happen in many crafts. Like right, they're expected. You know, there are technological advances in a lot of fields, but you might have a year where at an awards ceremony, the acting. It, you know, it dips below like the true pinnacles of some of the really amazing stuff. But every year VFX is expected to build and grow, build and grow, build and grow. So yeah. it's if uh, for my brain, it was always going to, I was always going to end up in something along those lines because there's always these new paths to yep. chase and look at. And it's an amazing thing to sit and learn within this realm. And I think I was just born at a lucky age. You know, I don't know what I would have been doing if I was 30 years older or, right. or coming in now, starting, you know, having not seen the pre-digital age. Um, right. So it's, I think it's, I've, I've been very lucky based on when I was born, I think, you know, which always helps. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, yeah, we're probably similar age, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but it's interesting to, to see that. I mean, I actually say, I agree with you. I always say, you know, visual effects almost, almost by definition is you have to make something that no one's ever seen before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's really kind of challenging. Um, uh, so, so what, what got your first big break into, into, into visual effects or CG? Um, into visual effects. I, I, I came through graphic computer graphic design. So sure. my first courses were primarily in visual arts, fine arts, drawing, sculpture. And then, uh, the course expanded and I happened to be there when it expanded and bought a computer lab. And so it went from not having computers to having a, a lab of six or eight computers. Right. And I briefly used them at home and my high school had a couple. But that moment I realized there was a lot of people doing print design and they were asked to do layouts and sheets where they were having to draw layers of CMYK, you know, all the print lineups. And they were yep. hand painting them. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can jump in. Like I think it was PageMaker or Coral Drawer at the time. Uh -huh. And I jumped in there and I did the separations and I printed them on acetate and I was done. And I thought, <laughs> well, I understand the process. I'm able to do the output. So it, sure. it grew from grew from there. And 
So I could see that computer graphic design was probably going to be where I was going to end up rather than the sort of print press direction, you know, heading down the implementation of magazines and stuff. Uh, but along the way, there's just been, it, it's just a culmination of, I've been lucky to be around the right people at the right times. Um, sure. I'm naturally inquisitive. I'm always asking people questions. And I think that's seen me take advantage of the people around me and their their information and their understanding of what's going on. So right. I had at my university, I was doing motion graphic design and my lecturer, Bridget Cabry, she was over from New York doing a couple of years at Wanganui School of Design. And yep. she'd helped design the typeface for the Fight Club title sequence. And so right. around that time, the world didn't seem that big when I was able to talk to her. You know, like she was from New York. She was two steps away. And she had this really interesting background on these projects she'd worked on with these amazing people. And I was yep. trying to get in touch with people uh, uh, in the realm of film title sequences. So I actually really loved those, which speaks oh. to the narrative and the image going down and the storytelling. So I think I did a, I did a thesis on on motion graphic design film title sequences and how they set up films or, or they you know foreshadow or, or what have you. And that what are some of your really favorite film titles? <laughs> Uh, I mean, there's a load. I really loved, obviously, Seven came out at the right time for my age. So sure. when that came out and Carl Cooper was doing that at Imaginary Forces. Uh, yep. But looking back through the years, I mean, all the way back to Saul Bass with his ones that he was doing uh, sure. back, you know, Vertigo all the way through. And then there was a few for the Bond films. I've always loved the Bond ones. I, I dearly love to work on a Bond title sequence. They're just mad. Uh, yeah. But Morris Binder was doing some, and obviously Danny Kleinman's done a load of great ones of recent with the guys. So it's sort of been a whole lot of little steps along the way. There was no run one massive moment. Um, but sure. when I got to Wellington in New Zealand and got into trying to do news graphics, basically, I ended up at an advertising house called Source, run by a couple of guys who were an ex-cameraman and soundy, and they had a flame in their building and i had no idea what that was because i'd been using yep. after effects photoshop coal you know all the desktop stuff yeah and uh the the flame artist there he for family reasons he had to leave and so my boss said well we can send you to melbourne you can learn a bit of flame and uh they sent me over there for a couple of days and then i came back and then it was a case of i had clients in advertising in flame. Who did you learn the flame under? You Rob O'Neill in Melbourne. I flew to Melbourne. It was the first time I'd ever left a country. So my boss was wow. really understanding. I, I didn't know, you know, how to act on an airplane, how to get in and out of other countries. I, it, you know, I just got a passport. So it was all new. And I think that experience, that learning and trust that Dave Tingey at Source gave me really okay. built everything into me and showed me like again the world opened up you know i was in melbourne right. and i was learning and then so came back to wellington and it was quite funny you know back then there weren't huge amounts of websites or anything that you could learn from this is 2001 so um it was a case of you the, the flame had these manuals and there was about two or three of them they were about this thick and right. i would just have to hide them in in the toilet in the building and just tell my client i'm just gonna go to the toilet and then i'll come back and i'll you know and i'd go in there and i'd thumb to the page i need and i'd get an update in my head and i'd come back in and it would all be covered so it was uh it was a sort of a bit fly by night but um it was they it, were still on SGIs back then weren't they sorry 
They were still on SGIs back then. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Down in their own big server room. We only had Mm -hmm. two. So we had one flame, one smoke. They were super Mm -hmm. expensive um, to run and to service. Uh, but they were amazing. They were, and it was another toy. You know, I loved sure. collecting all of these programs over the years. I've used like all of them. Um, right. I've been very fortunate to have been around an industry where loads of stuff has come and gone, and machines have come and gone, and technology has come and gone. And I've just loved, you know, playing with them all basically and pretending sure. to make a living out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's really great. I mean I think people would, you know, they 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 lucked out on the flame because the flames flame artists are very talented and they have a certain amount of uh the talent goes beyond the software yeah so because you're in front of clients a lot uh you kind of learn to interact with people a lot more and show how you do things and it's just a completely different interaction than a traditional vfx artist that sort of sits in the back and just waits for the supervisor to come by and approve their shots you know yeah it's um it's really interesting visual effects it seems like a technology based you know industry but it's a service industry the technology helps us but we're all servicing somebody at well for the most part servicing somebody else's story and film and pixels and love affair that they've got with their script or their idea and so uh when you're thrown into a room with a lot of people who have very strong opinions on what they're doing and you can sit at the front and listen you can learn really quickly in those flame suites they're great places to be i mean they were big rooms big desk with a computer up the front and desks for the clients up the back where they ate sushi and drank coffee um, and and the conversations they would have and the things you would hear and the understanding the pecking order and who and when to respond to and why and who to support in certain moments and just to elevate the piece and understand that we've got point A and we need to all get to point B uh, right. and we need to do it in a way where we're all happy with the end result but also feel like a lot of people have given their best to the project and feel supported through that because obviously as a flame artist i understand the software they won't understand the software they have no need to but what they might say is an emotive beat you know they might say i need this to feel and then as a flame artist you're like well that can mean we can color correct it blue or it means we can make it pop more or we can have it go faster or we can slow it down or so we have to translate those emotions into from a from a client from a, a person who's invested in this project to pixels at the end and that was a bit of a love affair you know sitting in rooms with people helping them achieve that you know um it's a it's a really lovely thing to do yeah yeah that's absolutely true and i think it's really i've always had that well my wife's a flame artist so that's why uh, Ah, there you go. <laughs> that's why i always praise them uh not really i mean, i've always been very impressed by that and i think it's an amazing way to especially to start your career is to have that training and have that understanding i think it sort of takes on a different perspective as you continue your career moving forward so how long were you how long were you practicing uh flame on uh in uh, new zealand i i was on flame in new zealand for about three years oh one to oh three oh four Okay. Uh, and then I moved to Australia. Uh, my partner, okay. she, her family lived in Brisbane. So we decided to okay. move to Brisbane. Again, a little step up, as I mean up, you know, larger mm-hmm. city, larger market, larger opportunities, more advertising being produced. And we right. wanted to live abroad. Um, so we, we moved over there. And that 
so we were we went from Wellington in New Zealand, where even though Lord of the Rings was happening at the time, there was there wasn't a lot of overlap with the advertising industry. You know, we were sort of doing our own thing, and they were very deep into theirs. Um, mm-hmm. We bumped into people, we knew people who were working there, but it was a case of we wanted to travel, so we moved to Brisbane, and then I picked up a, 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 a job at a um, at a place there called Beeps. Steve Cooper ran it, and um, he'd done some BBC work, so. We, we were in Brisbane, but he was also doing work from the UK. So it was all these little threads of things getting larger and projects we were working on getting bigger. Um, right. So we were we were there. We were in Brisbane for a few years, and that was where I first started uh, getting insight into the TV world, into episodic. Um, ah, okay. Yeah, it was a nice little bridge that one. So I was doing mostly advertising. Loads of advertising, music videos, all those sorts of things, working with really great people, good, really good team. Um, And then a guy who was producing children's television in Melbourne needed some help on a show called Wicked Science, which was for sort of preteen kids. Um, Okay. But it had loads of visual effects in it. So one day, uh, the facilities manager and I, Colin Brown, or he might have been GM at this point, he said, we've got a box full of scripts. There's 26 scripts in here, and they're all like this, and we've got a weekend to quote it. So he right. and I sat down on a Saturday and a Sunday and just went through all 26 scripts, read them all, read the whole lot, outlined what would need to be made, how we would approach it, what we would do, in conjunction with uh, Barry Lanfranchi, who was the VFX supervisor on the production side, on set supervisor. And uh, and then we flew down to Melbourne on the Monday and presented our cause and and we managed to get the project in and uh, it was a lot of fun because it was obviously a longer scale project. Um, at that point in time, most of the ads I was working on, you might work on them for maybe a month, um, but the TV, the Wicked Science series was was much more extended. I think we were about three months on that one, so maybe more. Wow. Okay. Well, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> it was a bit weird. It's pretty cool. And it was the first time. I mean, that's a big project, right? So it was it was cool to be able to have, participate in the in the bidding. I always love bidding projects. I don't know why. Because somehow yeah. it makes me excited about It's the same thing you were just talking about, like reading the script and trying to figure out how you're going to get it done. So when you're bidding, you're, do, you're kind of doing that, you know? Yeah, I've, I've never seen it as daunting. I really love reading them and circling, oh, this could be a visual uh-huh. effects. We could do this in camera if we did this little visual effects with this camera effect. Right. You know, all these little, I think I think we're naturally problem solvers, I think, VFX supervisors mm-hmm. and VFX comp artists and VFX CGI people and animators. We're all problem solvers. We see something that, you know, words come in and they float in and we we have a, have a think about them and then, and then we let our artistry artistry just flow out and that we solve problems constantly and it's it's a fun thing for me to do i'd much rather do that than a plus b equals you know or one plus two equals three sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh okay so what what did you to eventually move to the uk uh, a friend of mine came over. I mean, I'm a Kiwi, right? And we have this thing in New Zealand called the OE, Overseas Experience. Everybody does it. We all get on a okay. plane and we move to London for a couple of years and we live here and we see Europe and we live in London. It's English speaking. It's very easy for us. So sure. the intention was always to get here and you tend to try and do it as young as you as young as you can for things like okay. kids get in the way. Uh, so we were in Brisbane for a couple of years, three years, four years and moved to London 
And when I came to London, I had a load of uh, advertising experience from Brisbane. I had a couple of small contacts who were working at the mill and and a couple of other places. But mostly Mm -hmm. I just went door knocking because I needed some money to pay for my travel. You know, I wanted to get over to Europe, see Germany, see France, see Spain, see um, Iceland, Croatia, the whole lot. So you need a little bit of money to to get around at that point. And um, right. So I door knocked and it was very odd at that time, 2006, they don't list what companies have a flame. So you kind of have to guess. Uh, And the way I did it was I wrote down, I've still got my diary somewhere here where I'd written down the firms. They had websites, but you couldn't work out who was doing what or where at that point in time. So you'd you'd get a sniff of a name or something and you'd like a CD or a creative director or a flame, maybe a flame artist would be mentioned on a website somewhere. And then you door knock and that's, you go into Soho and you knock on the door and you walk into the mill or to frame store or to MPC or, and you try and get in contact with somebody who will look at your reel because at that point in time, there were online reels, but mostly it was still about getting people's attention. So, uh getting the right person's attention so i always did that I, very early in my career colin brown uh advised me to make a reel that stands out so i would make mine because of my graphic design background i would make a booklet that had a vhs tape in it or and a dvd usually and it'd all be labeled like me it would come in a little package that was all branded like me i could get vinyl stickers made but then in my booklet, I'd do little strange things that would make them remember me. So I had pages that were made of leather that were printed on, which is something I'd learned back in my graphic design days. I had mm-hmm. um, I'd printed out or taken photos of and then printed on neg, uh, camera neg uh, pages, and then I'd weave them together with nylon so that they became a full page so that sprockets were woven, things like that. And then if you put that in a booklet and you slide it under the right person's nose, they'll be like, well, this is odd, you know. Mm-hmm. It's better to stand out and, and be a bit Marmite. You know, they either love you or hate you than right. to just not get noticed. So back then that was that was my technique was to leave these little packages. At, I only had about six or eight of them. So I used to have to chase them up because I'd put one what? in somewhere and then give it a week or two and then I'd go back and I'd be like, can I have it back? Um, <laughs> so that was tricky. But then also I did discover that um, the smartest thing you can do because obviously it was the receptionists were usually the port of call and you, for security reasons, you wouldn't be allowed in the building. Right. But um, if you went in with a muffin and slid that across the desk to the receptionist, just said, can you please make sure this ends up in the right person's hand? Uh, right. It would end up usually in a producer's hand or a CD's hand, my reel. And then I'd get a phone call. We haven't got any work, but we'll keep you on file. Or right. what's your availability? I, I think that's excellent advice. By the way, I should note that like one of my first career advice I, I was ever given was the receptionist at Blur Studio before I started anything. Because I just literally cold called them and same thing. And then she's like, here's what you got to do. You got to do this, this, this. Yeah. That's the only way you're going to get their attention. And I was like, okay. And so I went back and did that. And then I got a job, not at Blur, but somewhere else. But what's yeah. interesting is she still works at Blur. And so, <laughs> and, I, and I work with them a lot myself now. And so she's, I told her this story. It's like, do you know that you kickstarted my career? And I like, and it's so important that people realize that how important it is. So, so yeah, Betty yeah, is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've been reading, you know, I, I, it's such a wonderful career that we have, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's surreal. I mean, is mm-hmm. it work? Let's be honest. It's play <laughs> while you're being paid with a bit of stress. Right. 
Um, but right. uh, it's really hard for younger people. I struggle not to say kids because I'm so old now. Uh, for younger people to get into this industry because of the assumption of the digital age and how easy it is to access people. So you can yeah. get in contact with people on, it's never been easier, on LinkedIn, through recruiters, on Instagram, on all of these platforms. But yeah. in all honesty, until you've got your eyeballs on them, it's really hard to genuinely get their attention. And so whenever I give little chats at universities and stuff, I'm always like, if you can door knock, if you can know somebody who knows somebody, if your neighbor's sister works at, go and meet them for a drink with their friends. You know, like the that we work in a service industry where we work in large teams. And so they need to know, you need to be good at what you do. But if you're good at what you do and you're really personable and you will fit into a crew of people who are all working together, striving to finish these problems to, you know, work together, employers are always going to lean on you a bit more and, and, and ensure that maybe you get in the door ahead of somebody who might be more technically brilliant, but maybe doesn't work as well within teams because most visual effects studios are large teams now, you know, it's, right. it's a team sport. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So where did you end up uh, after all that door knocking? What so, did you <laughs> I ended up at a company called Clear at the time. So uh, Derek Moore got my reel from the receptionist. She ate the muffin and gave him the reel. And then yeah. they were working on a film at the time 28 weeks later. Mm -hmm. uh, and they needed somebody the following day. So he called me and he was like, can you come in? Can you work in the next couple of days? I was like, yep, yeah, um, that's what I'm here for. So I went in right. and uh, he ran me through the place, put me in into a seat as fast as he could, and and I got comping. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was, you know, it was a lot of fun. I was, um, I had loads of shots of like London removing people and stuff like that, just because oh, it cool. was obviously set in yep. a pandemic, effectively. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it was, um, it was really, really exciting again because I was, you know another step this was a hollywood film shot in london being posted in london mm -hmm. but you know the world was was opening up again in little steps and in, in you know i i put in the time i put in the hours and they had really lovely supers and stuff on the show people you know at the, the other end on the production end who were always in the office and and giving up their time and their energy and their their advice which was really lovely so again all the flame artists who were super experienced at clear at the time uh, giving me advice and then clear emerged with prime focus and became prime focus which was a, a series of firms all amalgamated i think it was yep. four or five of us um into a larger facility yeah cool cool and so you did you did you focused uh on on feature films at that point or were you still doing commercial work no i was doing most commercials um okay. the thing the thing i really love about um commercials was the the um client contacts and that sitting in rooms right. sitting in flame suites i noticed the films were excuse me really lovely um yep. but there was less less people milling around solving problems with you coming in discussing what they wanted to achieve and the time frames were longer so actually i really loved betting myself into the advertising scene in london uh yeah. if my argument would be it's you know, one of the strongest markets in the world, if not the, especially at the time. Um, I really love the British sensibilities of humour and, you know, everything really sat well with me. It's somewhere I'd always looked up to um, sure. from early in my career, especially through graphic design, you know, all of the 
heavy hitters who were living here at the time. So right. um, I did mostly advertising, mostly music videos. Um, and yeah, just really enjoyed my time working on that with the teams of people. I think we had about 30 flames there by the end. So there was a lot of really experienced people to learn from and, and pick up as, as much as I could along the way. Yeah, so you've been there a long time now at this point. This is the part yeah, of it, right? I, in 2006, we landed in okay. in London. And then we were here for a few years. And then our, um, what are they called? The the traveling visa or whatever it was, we can only use right. for a short period of time, which is why the OE overseas experience is short. Okay. But then uh, headed back to Brisbane, um, spent mm -hmm. a few months there. And then by mistake, I sent a rugby league score. I was mocking my friend Phil, who was Phil in Brisbane, uh, okay. but I sent it to the wrong Phil. I sent it to Phil Hurrell, who was a, a CD at Prime Focus. Okay. And he said, what do you think? Do you want to come back? Uh, we'll sponsor you. So we'll get you on the on the on a visa. On a visa. And mm -hmm. um, so I put it to my partner. I said to Ange, you know, it would what do you want to do? Is it Brisbane or London? And she said, well, these opportunities don't come up often, so let's go to London now because we can always, it's always fairly easy for us Kiwis to get back into Australia. So right. we decided to hit London and it's been home ever since. Yeah. Wow, almost 20 years. <laughs> yeah, eight, 18 years, give or take the little gaps right. in between. So, you know, we lived in West London for a long time and it's, it's home. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, what, what, how did this, uh, how did this Ted Lasso thing happen? How did all of that sort of. So when I was in commercials, I worked with a woman named Jen Godden, super experienced commercials producer. And she, during the pandemic left advertising and pre pandemic, I think just had moved into episodic. Uh, okay. And she had an agent. Um, I'd worked with her at, the, at Prime Focus, but also at the mill. I did a few years at the mill at a big facility, you know, big ads. So I'd, I'd grown in scale over time. And she said, oh, my agent's going to get in touch with you, Harriet Donington. Um, and Harriet got in touch. She said, we've got this little, you know, 22-minute uh, comedy piece in West London. Just wondering if you're interested. And and I jumped on it. I was like, yeah, it sounds, sounds awesome. Sounds amazing. Uh, and this so was the first season? This was second season. So the first season okay. had been shot. It had been edited, but I don't think it had aired yet. And they were already thinking about planning the second season. Two. Okay. Well, maybe it had aired. No, I think it must have aired. Okay. Anyway, I watched it, loved it, and I thought, yeah, I'm I'm on board with this. It's it's right up my alley. It's you know I'd done a lot of state big stadium jobs and stuff at uh, the mill when we you did a lot of projects with the likes of Nike and Adidas and all the major brands so uh, it was an extension of those sorts of commercials and uh, so Harriet called and she said would you like to do it and it was the middle of the pandemic so I had the advantage of being the nearest visual effects <laughs> supervisor to the studio which was an advantage uh, so I jumped on that literally got on my bicycle rode down met all the production heads so Andrew Warren and all the guys um, and the the teams down there Paul Cripps the production designer and all the heads of department and we sat in a room and I remember looking around this room thinking there's a lot of very very experienced people here and these would be great people to learn from so right. uh, I said I'd love to do the job and then it was a case of chatting to um, so that was this side that was the London side they seemed relatively comfortable but Kip Kroger and Caitlin Hollenbeck who were LA side 
um, they they had to sort of approve me and make sure that I was up to it. You know, they were producers, co-producers, post-supervisors. And um, so we met and chatted and I really got along with them. And then they introduced me to Barnstorm, to the guys at Barnstorm, which was um, Corey Jamison and Lawson Demick. And they own and run Barnstorm VFX. And Barnstorm had done the VFX for, I think, 100 shots, I want to say, football shots in season one. So they had a proven track record, but it was done quite a, a little bit differently that time around first season and with the show getting popular we knew it was going to grow um based on what apple wanted what jason wanted what bill and um brendan and the teams of writers all wanted everything was elevating and getting slightly bigger so kip and caitlin and Corey and lawson all got together and and they were comfortable with me doing as well so there was a real uh synergy of people who were very trusting with me um i'd done very little you know episodic onset supervision at this point i'd handled big um, you'd done episodes. some on set with commercials though right yeah loads with commercials but sure. the longest commercial shoot was probably 20 days max that's um, a pretty long commercial <laughs> it, yeah the rd one was a pretty big one the, yeah. the, the mclaren one was big because i directed so there was a lot of pre-prod and stuff in right that. so i had flavors of things and it was building so uh i was just i just really wanted to learn from all of these people and i could see from the way that so many people came back from season one to do season two from the crew so many Mm -hmm. like came back i thought well this is going to be a great there's something happening here that's really really good and i wanted to be a part of it to learn from all of these people and then it was just a case of an education for me where i would just go around set all day annoying people like focus pullers and crane operators and COVID supervisors and you know wardrobe and i'd just natter to them and i'd find out how we can help them how they can help us what they're getting up to what they're bringing to it and and it was just a load of fun so yeah i would be there as many days as i could i think it was non-consecutive days on that show from memory so i was having to i would do a few days because they the the football blocks i was needed for but not a lot else there was a bit of blue screen um for one of the studio one of rebecca's office was all blue screen at that point it had to be moved for logistical reasons so there was a few things there um to chat about and then i went in and i met the dops and we chatted and i met the directors and they were all lovely and and it, it was the show is the making of the show is a, a true reflection of the the feeling and the sentiment of the show itself so it That's was awesome it was amazing like it really was a, an amazing education for me yeah and you so main the main thing that you were doing was set extension right that was one of the biggest things you're you're trying to create right yeah loads of set extension so we had in season 2 we had a few offices that were blue screen so we had to work out how to shoot okay. them but yeah predominantly the football um and making sure that it all sat well in the scope of what Apple was now looking to achieve so we knew I knew reading the scripts that we were going to be shooting at places like Wembley uh, well, having to make games look like they were being played at Wembley and at mm-hmm. Nelson Road and at Crystal Palace and at, I can't remember what we did in season two. It's so long ago now. But we knew the logistics of the set extension. But the really interesting thing is 
that during that time, football matches were being played without crowds. And it was really right. fascinating watching those because a lot of people were like, the football. Oh, because of COVID. <laughs> during COVID. Right, so, right, right. so you had these empty stadiums and they tried to solve it a whole bunch of ways. And it really showed up that if you don't get the crowds right, it's this dead, weird atmosphere where you can hear the players, but there's no, the narrative is all there from a game, you know, whether a team's winning or losing and how they're playing in real life in the Premier League. But with no atmosphere, it was a very odd viewing experience. They tried using fake crowd sounds, and even that didn't work because the arcs didn't follow what was going on on the pitch. Sure. So we knew that the most important thing was to get the football stadiums accurate. You know, we, we were a reflection of the Premier League itself, so we had to be accurate. Um, but how the crowds interact with what's happening on the football pitch was super important. We had to know that we had all the emotive beats for what was happening in every single shot, possibly from up to seven camera angles at any given time. We had to know that we could create a crowd that would be building that atmosphere around what, you know, Brendan and Jason and all the teams of writers had put on the football pitch at that time because it can feel dead or flat if it's not right. So right. we had a series of discussions about how we could do that because what we didn't want to do is plate the whole lot, um, but we did want to use people, real people giving real performances. So it was a case of working out how we would build that emotion in and get it aligned with what was happening at any given moment in the minutes and hours of footage that we had to do by the end of season three. So did you guys, you shot real people or did you guys use CrowdSim solutions as well? We used a little bit of CrowdSim in season two, but in season three, they're all real people. So bar a tiny handful, but predominantly what we did was um, with Lawson and with Bill um, Parker, who covered, he was comp supervisor on season two and three and I think one, we created this video, the six and a half minute video. And it's really funny. It's in season two, it was Lawson in season three, it was Bill, uh, standing, giving all the emotions of the football fans and they filmed themselves. We wrote out what the emotive beats were to cover an entire six in six and a half minutes, everything. So standing, right. clapping, booing, boo, you know, yelling right. at the team, excited. How many people did you film? <laughs> so we had 200, 200 people on two days for season three and we cycled them through in groups of seven and we played the six minute video. There was a lot of maths we had to do because we literally just knew our, our shoot day and we knew right. the teams we had to cover. We knew the uh, emotions we had to cover was six and a half minutes. We knew how long it would take to shuffle them in and out. So it was a real logistical kind of to get us covered on everything. Right. And we knew some, crowds we could hue shift so we could take a red and make it a blue if we had to fill in extra bits and bobs but mm-hmm. uh yeah we shot for two days shooting sprites so the people would line up a bit like a um a police shoot you know police lineup right. and they'd come in they'd be played the video while they were in the green room and then they would come in and they would it was like a synchronized dance so they'd give this right. dance this minute yay we're excited oh, we're booed oh your team ah oh, chew your nails so they could hear Bill's voice, but they couldn't see him. And that was important because we didn't want them mimicking him. We wanted them to do their own thing. We wanted right. all of these people to be given real performances. 
Right. And they did it beautifully. It was amazing. Like the, the energy levels they kept up all day. So we would cycle through, I think, seven at a time. I'm pretty sure it was seven, six, seven or eight. And they would cycle in and cycle out, and then they'd get changed, and, and a new group of people would come in, and, and we did that all day. And it drove the, the, the crew mad because this video would play all day, and you'd hear the same voice giving the same commands every six and a half minutes for, for all day. Um, but it worked really well. We shot them front, three-quarter, and side-on, and that covered most of our shots. That's amazing. Um, because we wanted real flexibility for, for production. What we didn't want to do, when we were setting up the football production with Pedro, second unit director, who covered um, all of all of it, and DOP Ness White and David Rom, who shot other episodes, they we had broadcast cameras set up in traditional broadcast position so we had an a and b cam down on pitch level um mm. at hazen yetting we had a goal cam we had a gantry cam we occasionally had a ronin and we occasionally had a steady cam occasionally we had a helmet cam so we knew we had to basically cover every seat in the stadium from every direction um yeah. and and so because of that we we shot that six and a half minute video knowing most of the world we live in we're fine right. Then we reached a point where everything keeps elevating and uh, we started to put cranes in Manchester City, sweeping around the crowd singing, coming up into the, the corporate boxes behind. So we started to get some angles that were a bit fruity, but at that point we'd already got Metastage involved. Who I, I think you've chatted to, to Metastage on your podcast, I think, at some point. Uh, yes, yes. Um, so their volume capture crowd is right. what we used. So we had the same video. We played it to people in LA who stepped into the volume. So they're real people, real emotions, real eccentricities. They might be holding a flag and do something weird with it. They might, you might ask them to yell and they're tired. So they'll just sit down, <laughs> you know, or, right. or you might want them to, you know, have a look to your left and they'll look to their left or they'll look to their right. They'll do it all slightly different. Yeah. They did that in the volume stage. And so the advantage of that was, we could place them in back and any angle. angles, elevated camera angles, yep. anywhere up really close as well. So if we had we had Pep Guardiola on the pitch on the side dugout um, at Manchester, and then we had some really close seats. So we right. would always – I always had, whenever we were in the stadiums, Andrew Warren and the crowd teams, Gabby and all the, all the ADs who were ushering crowd for us, we had anywhere from 100 to 200 people each time dressed up. And what we would do is for every camera angle when we were in a stadium, I'd fill in using the, the ADs, would move them around like a dance. Ness would settle her camera in and then or two cameras. And then once they were settled in, we'd quickly usher in all these people to fill as much of the gate as we could. So we would fill the, the first three rows, four rows. 100, mm -hmm. 200 people get swallowed up quickly in a stadium when there's 53,000. Yeah, yeah. So we would put them in the mid-ground, real people. Then we could use meta stage for the chunks beyond for a few seats. And then we could use our sprites beyond that. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And that's... occasionally we tiled depending on time I had on set. So we'd run a second unit where we'd shoot a few tiles, but we very rarely used those. I don't, I think, I think we had a couple of real, Profile moments where they worked really well at Manchester, uh, where we okay. would use all 200 people in one little tile. But predominantly, 
we were filling one seat, one sprite, one particle, one person, one real person giving a real performance in every seat that you see. That's, yeah. How did you guys assemble all that? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, very early on, we discovered, we, we knew Hazen Yetting, our football ground, semi-professional football ground across the road from the studios. Yep. Were really, they were so supportive and amazing. Their, their groundsmen, their team of people there, they gave us carte blanche on the pitch. We were allowed everything we wanted on the pitch, players, ADs, you know, camera crews, the whole lot. Amazing. But then anything beyond that, we knew we were going to have to replace. And beyond that, we knew it had to be nut and bolt detail level accuracy because the Premier League and the English football, uh, Premier League predominantly and people like Nike and everybody were really on board and wanted super accurate um, representations of what was going on. So we weren't able to blag any. So what we did was we called the guys at Visual Skies Up, who are LiDAR and photogrammetry company. Uh, mm-hmm. Duncan and the team there would always go into a ground for us and scan the whole stadium for us, the interior, what we call the bowl. Because the exteriors, we didn't often construct exteriors, but we would construct everything interior all the way up to the roof in CGI. And the team, Duncan and his team, would go in and they'd use aerial uh, and terrestrial uh, LIDAR and drones and photogrammetry. So they spent two days at Manchester City for Mom City, the one we're nominated for. They spent two days there getting it all to like nut and bolt level detail of the stadium. So then we were able to scan Hazen Yetting as well and then overlay the two and know exactly what we were doing. So very early on with the scripts, I would say the script editor, we would usually shoot the football first on the Hazen Yetting ground. And I would, with the script editor, construct uh, football plan charts with the choreographers as well, Dan Parslow and Cass and Pedro, the director, and we'd work out where the action was happening on the pitch and what direction we were facing, because we would flip and flop the pitch because the light, Ness would want the light to be backlit here or frontlit there. Or, so we had a drawing for every scene, for every moment. I would list where a camera was, so the two touchline cameras, the goal camera, the gantry camera, whether or not it was a Ronin, all of those things I would put into this photo map, which was just a top-down plan. And then the script supervisor would look at it and say, okay, well, Ted's on this side of the pitch. He's facing that way. They're looking this way. This is where the corporate boxes are. This is what, you know, Rebecca and the team are how reacting and what direction they're looking in. So it was a real team environment of mapping all of that together. And then when we got to the stadiums, uh, you know, like Manchester, we would know where the action was shot, what, you know, whether it was the north end, the south end, where they would be looking, we would know where our corporate boxes were, what, you know, what was happening, whether we were first half, whether we were second half, whether or not the away crowd were in the right position. We had to move them a couple of times. There's a couple of little fakes in there. But um, sure. it was just solid planning from the very beginning and everybody being on board with it. Um, and and making sure we were mirroring things when we were in the stadium if we had to, um, but yeah, it was all all the stadiums are all CG unless they're a hero camera shot where you've got Pep or Ted talking on the top, on the sideline. So when sure. they're on the sideline, we knew we were going to use those in camera with empty seats behind and do our meta stage and our you know our real people, our meta stage, our sprites um, filling up the whole place. But because we had the lidar. 
we could line up every shot to the real stadium to seat accuracy. So when we were generating the people, we knew it was one person in, in every single seat. Right. And you just randomly scattered it. <laughs> and you, well, so that's interesting. American sports are very different to British sports. Yeah. Uh, and initially at the very beginning, we were getting these renders where we could see like Richmond people sitting next to Manchester City people, and all that sort of stuff going on. And that is just not the case in British sport. Uh, no, they are yeah they get busted and they get put into these little areas so depending on how our cameras were working we would see mostly home team for a large stretch of the stadium and occasionally you'd get the corner where the away team were Richmond for the Mom City one so Mm -hmm. the the way the crowds were reacting had to be inversely proportional to what was required from the crowd beside them they might only be a short distance apart we had all the proper barriers and everything constructed and made in CGI and then mapped in from the stuff that um, Visual Skies gave us. And so then it was a case of putting a sprite, a person in every seat. And then finally, this late in the piece, once AJ and Mal, the editors on the show, were refining their cuts and getting them into these sort of more consolidated representations of what was going to happen because of the narrative on the pitch, we were able to choose very late because of the way Bill and Lawson and everybody put the the Sprite video together. We were able to choose very late in the process what the uh, crowds were doing. So we were able to choose their emotions. So we had moments where, okay, we want 25% standing cheering. We want 25% sitting down disappointed. We want 30% screaming at the... So it was a really lovely process because it was all every shot we entered in, or you know, all twelve hundred shots or whatever that got completed on the entire series, um, right. had percentage values for what the crowds were doing, and um, and it all aligned. Hopefully, so you you mentioned in season two, I guess that you got did some crowd sim, but that you preferred to use real people in real situations. Why? Why was that? What, why, what was not working with simulations that uh, this system worked better for you? The oddities of what people will do. You know, it's that old adage of like, if you ask a computer to finish the um, sequence one, two, three, it'll say four. Right. And most people will say four if you say finish the sequence. One, two, three, sure. four. But occasionally somebody will say banana or they'll say right. Cucumber, or they'll say A or Q. And when you're looking at football crowds, that is what they do. There's people leaning over barriers, flapping flags. There's people high-fiving. There's people doing, do you know, somebody might be a secret, you know, away fan in a home end, and he's, oh, no, you know, when right. they should be cheering. So all these eccentricities, I think, that we were able to get from real people, real performances, real actors, real supporting artists, right? Uh, saw us, you know, bring bring a little bit of flourish and flavour into some of these shots that I'm sure we could get there with the CGI crowd, you know, eventually. But uh, I think for us it was a case of we really wanted actors playing parts and and right. and that was uh was what we aimed strived for in every as as many of all the shots as as we could best i think it's wonderful i think and you're absolutely right it's just in you know cg you know massive or crowd sims have been used in stadiums for so long <laughs> yeah uh and and uh, and i think you're right you don't necessarily get those eccentric 
eccentric performances that you might unexpectedly see, you know? Yeah, people are weird. You know, that you just have to sit in a cafe on the street in London and watch a street for 10 minutes and just to see oddities of, sure. you know, what we get up to. I'm, I'm guilty of it. We all are. Um, right. And it, it's just kind of, it's really interesting watching. We shot some of the staff at Barnstorm to be, uh, we had 253 security guards who were hand-placed based on right. where they would be in the real match day situation. And the Barnstorm guys all dressed up in security guard outfits and, and did, you know, did poses and moves and interesting things. You know, they'd be watching the crowd and you could tell by their body language that they were doing, they were trying to be security guards. It's weird. You, you can just tell, you know, they right. were sort of being official. They were a little bit more stiff. They were facing the crowd rather than facing the game. They were doing all of the right things. And um, I think, yeah, just when you get people involved, they they bring something to it that uh, computers can't always. They can achieve it, but it just sometimes it's it's about where you want to spend your pound to get your pixels. You know, it's right. you you can put more money into CGI, or you can get a whole lot of actors in for a couple of days, have a bit of fun, drive the crew crazy with the looping video, hearing right. Bill's voice all day. Uh, and it, it just seemed like more fun way to do it, and with a fairly decent output at the end, we're really happy. With yeah, it. no, well, obviously, very decent because we got <laughs> a nice little nomination out of it, uh, which is really cool. I think it's nice to, to you know, you know, especially now that seeing, uh, you know, working closely with actors is a really nice thing as well, and involving them in the process is a really kind of a, a, a wonderful thing. So, I mean, the, the the show is a wonderful show, and obviously, your work. Is so it was really great. I'm, uh, well, how long were you working on that? Uh, I can't quite remember. I believe I shot for 151 days. Okay. Um, there was a unit that went to the States for a short while at the end to cover a few things. Okay. Um, and then I would have been in pre-prod before the shoot for a good month or two, maybe maybe more so yeah okay. it was i mean it was effectively a good good year you know give yeah. or take um yeah. it was it was really nice though it's really interesting seeing the script outlines and watching them develop and then watching the scripts develop you know seeing them through their color you know white blue green yellow goldenrod uh and seeing the little things that come and go that you know each time i'd have to update my vfx docs or you know, methodologies and stuff on, you know, little tweaks here and there. Um, sure. So, it, yeah, that's a really nice part of the process, actually seeing it from there all the way through to sitting with Barnstorm and the guys all the way till the final ep, till the final shot went out on the final ep. So it was really lovely to be involved in that side of things as well. Um, so living and working in the UK on LA time was a bit taxing. But uh, it was they've got amazing teams of artists over there, and, and it was great fun working on with the artists and also working on comping on shots and stuff as well. Wow! So you, yeah, you had to stay up late. <laughs> well, Bill was covering most things at that end. Okay. Actually, it was quite nice because I could get up here, do a few hours work before anybody was even awake, and it was it's just like it was like harping back to my days of sitting in a flame suite on my own, just working away like. I right. really enjoyed those few hours before everybody got up and everybody needed answers. So um, actually, it was a really nice process. It just meant I drank more coffee than I probably should have for the last <laughs> couple of months. 
<laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, that's amazing. I think it's really cool you did that. What's what's come up next for you? I don't know. We're all we're we're all in pause mode. You know, uh, right. I think we're all very supportive of of what you know. We're we're all bearing the brunt from the writers and actors' strikes, but mm-hmm. I think it's something that we've got to get behind. Um, you know, having spent a lot of time with these writers and with these actors on set and seeing how how they move forward with these these things, you know, I think as an industry we have to support one another. Um, so for now, well, I think you did. You you proved it with your crowds that you're right. <laughs> some some would say, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You didn't use some AI to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there's yeah, there, there's something in the craft of what we do where we need to be near people. You know, yeah. we're a lovely little marriage of art and science and vision effects. Absolutely, and the art and the people that you're around, the learning and the the, the just the general being part of these crews of people and who they are and how they operate and why was just amazing. So yeah, it's all a little bit on pause at the moment, but that's fine. Sure. You know, um, I can always bounce back into advertising a little bit. I've still got a few friends there, so uh, right. we're all just trying to you know, support each other and pay the bills and all that. But it's it's fine. I'm sure you know we all got through a pandemic. If we can do yeah. that with and come out the other side with our sanity and our children having home learned enough from us, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll be fine in the long run with this. Because I, th- I think that, I mean, that, that I would say this, you know, the pandemic showed the pause, showed how much people in moments need the arts, you know, like yes. um, it's all very fine and dandy when we're, you know, wanting a little bit of escapism, but sometimes you actually need answers as well. And sometimes only a song or a TV show will bring you that in moments of, you know, where things get a little bit tough for you. And and Ted Lasso, I think, landed at the right time, you know, at the sentiments of the show. It's such a warm show, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so I think that that's exactly the kind of thing that people needed is to be able to feel yeah. good about themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and and so Jason, really Brendan, and Bill yeah. wrote a lovely show and and – you could feel it on the set. You know, we were all wearing COVID masks and we were all separated and we were all mm-hmm. ad- adhering to the COVID team's rules. And But mm-hmm. we just really wanted to, you know, produce something that we were all super proud of and, and that we were all supportive of. And and I think I think it shows through in the way the show was made that, most you know, most of the people came back for season three as well. So it was really lovely. Um, but I think we need to support each other in, in these down moments. But... We'll all be fine. It, it will, something will resolve itself. For sure. For sure. Well, listen, James, thank you so much. It's been wonderful hearing your story and, you know, the, and, and hearing more about uh, Ted Lasso and how that's going. So, and congratulations again on your nomination. And hopefully they'll have the award ceremony soon and you'll be able to <laughs> come. Are you going to come to, uh, well, to Los Angeles when it happens? So I've not met any of the LA people in person. I've been working with these people for like three and a half years. Okay. So, Kroger. Caitlin Hollenbeck, Corey Jamison, Lawson Deming, Bill Parker, you know, all of the teams of people that I've been working with. I just want to hug them or say hello or, you know, sit down and have a meal and just discuss the last three and a half years, four years. Um, right. So I would love to come over. But we'll see. It's, you know, if, if it doesn't happen due to awards, uh, I'm yeah. sure I'll, I'll get on a plane at some point because it's uh, 
they're part of the Have family. you ever been to Los Angeles? Uh, I've stopped through it briefly on my way to New okay. Zealand, but no, I haven't spent any good time there. So I've got a load of friends who now live there. So I'll try and make some time to come over and, and see everyone right. because it's, uh, yeah, it's it's been a big part of everything for me. And um, it's been really exciting. It's it's uh, it's such a strange position to be in, Chris. It's, yeah. uh, it's not something I'd ever thought would ever happen or, I'm very fortunate to have been around the right people at the right time and just right. leeching as much information out of them as I can. Um, sure. So, you know, it's it's been exciting. Thanks for that. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, yeah. it's been a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thanks again for doing this. No worries, man. Thank you.